Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel, we have Alan. Hello, hello. And me, I'm Sasha Wolf, small panel today. And as a guest, we have Tech. Tech, how do you pronounce your name? Sorry for that. Uh, yeah, no worries. Yeah, Tej Poshiraj. Okay. And Tej, why don't you tell us like why you're on the show and why you're famous and why everybody likes you? Okay. I don't know how many people like me and I don't think I'm famous, but I'll tell you why I'm here. So a few months ago, I wrote a, a blog talking about how to post uh, PWAs within Alexa Phoenix and how those two can dovetail and live uh, happily together. So that's got me onto the radar, so to speak, and yeah, I got invited here. But I'm happy to talk about how we use Elixir and what we do with it and how it fits into our IoT world. And nice. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Maybe for our listeners who are not familiar with what a PBA is, do you want to say a few words about that? Sure. PWA or a progressive web app is essentially a combination of small things that make a web app installable onto your desktop or your phone device. Right? So, so these are things like a manifest file, a small JavaScript file, which uh, allows it, the phone or you know, essentially your, your device to cache all the web resources. And essentially the end result is that you can run the web app offline and locally as if uh, it were a natively installed app. And what exactly was the use case in, like, in, your, in your company? You said you, you're having, working at an IoT company, so I assume it has something to do with IoT? Yeah, so, okay. So we're still exploring how exactly this fits in. We've done a pilot now, and we're going to go, I'll go a bit deeper into how that works. But uh, the PWA that uh, I wrote the blog post about essentially is, uh, is a WebSockets client. So it's just a simple UI tool that allows you to connect to WebSocket uh, hosts and send messages and receive messages. I wrote it as a simpler to use replacement for WebSocket, which is one of the go-to tools for the command line. You know, you, you just type in WebSocket space, whatever the host name is, and then you can send messages and receive messages. And that's great, but it's in the CLI, copying, pasting messages is a bit problematic, et cetera. And I wanted something that was a bit easy, for, easy to use for uh, other developers as well as for myself. So just wrapped uh, the native JavaScript uh, WebSocket functionality into a web UI and put it on our existing Alexa Phoenix app because, well, I needed a host to put it into. And then the Alexa Phoenix app is actually, a, is actually our IoT gateway. So it just made sense to put everything in one place. Yeah. So it's a WebSocket client and it uses uh, Phoenix channels to establish connection with our IoT devices. But you can use it for any, you can actually use it for any WebSocket host. Okay, that, that sounds pretty cool. I mean, you said it's WebSocket client. So is it like anything special, anything cool like you're doing with it? I mean, you said that it's uh, basically a nicer version of like WebSocket from a command line. Like any any story there where, where you like used it and like discovered maybe something new about PVA, something new about Phoenix uh, sockets, that kind of stuff? 
Yeah, okay. So I don't know how familiar you or your uh, listeners are with uh, Phoenix channels, right? So, but Phoenix channels are a really, really nice abstraction on top of WebSockets, so- uh, web essentially adding easy-to-use APIs for managing client joining and data being sent in. Right. So, and then uh, you have Elixir side hooks, server side hooks, essentially to do validation, authentication, you know, the standard auth- authentication authorization, as well as then validation of the data that's coming in. So one way that we use uh, Phoenix channels is that uh, we, we, we actually develop uh, IoT hardware, right? So maybe some background on that is important. So we, we are IoT ready, our company is called IoT ready. Uh, what we build are essentially IoT-ready hardware applications. And to us, IoT-ready essentially means that the hardware is API-ready. So it's not enough that you know uh, we have a Wi-Fi interface or an Ethernet interface, et cetera. We have a specific standard for what, to which we build our hardware. And that is that out of the box, our hardware, when you plug it in and power it up, should provide an API that a software developer can consume. So the kind of hardware that we develop, you know, uh, we, we, we sell RFID readers, we sell barcode scanners, current sensors, uh, soon uh, IoT-ready camera. And the idea is that similar to how Square did it for credit card swiping machines, you know, Square basically revolutionized the entire point of sale system uh, because suddenly the, here was a point of sales hardware that a software developer could immediately work with. You know, you didn't need to know anything about hardware. You didn't need to know, uh, you know, what kind of connector this uses, et cetera. You just powered it in. It had a micro USB connector. You powered it in or you plugged it into your phone, and then it was you as a software developer dealt with the SDK or the API. And so that's the same thing that we're trying to achieve with our hardware. And the way we do it is our hardware has two levels of API layers. So one is that the native hardware level, there's a WebSocket API. So you can actually send WebSocket messages to our hardware and get uh, responses back. And the second is we have aggregators, and these aggregators are built using uh, Elixir, which aggregate data from our hardware layers and uh, hardware devices. And then there's a Phoenix API available to get the data out of uh, these hardware devices. And the way that we aggregate data from the hardware devices into the Phoenix application is through Phoenix channels. So each of our devices is authenticated using X509 certificates, uh, similar to how NERVS does it. Uh, and then we send data over Phoenix channels into the Elixir application, the core Elixir application. And once they are in the core Elixir application, there's a standardized API that we provide for all of our hardware, where if you are a software applic- uh, application developer, you can just talk to the Phoenix APIs and get data in real time. So that's essentially how we are using it. The way, the place where this WebSockets app, uh, the PWA comes in, is that uh, it does two things. And this this is going to get a little bit complicated. As I mentioned, our hardware itself has a WebSockets API, right? And then Phoenix has a WebSockets API. So the reason we, for debugging, what we used to do is we would have a WebSocket client connecting to our hardware and making sure that we get sending the right data, we're getting the right data, the state is correct, et cetera. And then we would also have a WebSocket client connecting up to Phoenix and making sure that everything was okay on that end. So for debugging, we would do this. Now that WebSocket client is replaced with this PWA. The PWA basically established a connection to both the hardware and to uh, the Phoenix channels and just make sure that, yeah, it listens to both of them and make sure that everything's okay. So that's, it's just a UI for doing that. That, that sounds useful. So c- can you tell me like who exactly is like the, the consumer of like the PWA? Is that like your developers or is that maybe like customers running this on, on their own hardware or like customers from which you manage this on somewhere? Like 
where, where, where does that come in? Does the question make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the consumers of this particular PWA, this particular PWA is, is essentially think of it as a prototype developer tool, right? We have another PWA which uh, is essentially consumed by our customers. And that particular PWA is actually used to configure our hardware. So uh, all of our hardware uh, ships with QR codes, you know, an e-paper display, et cetera, uh, where depending on the state of the hardware, a different QR code is shown on the hardware. So imagine, okay, let's let's take a typical use case. Okay, So we're shipping an RFID reader out to a completely new customer. Let's say you, right? So we're shipping an RFID reader out to you. You've received it. Now, how do you proceed? So what you do is you open up our PWA, uh, you scan the QR code, which is on the e-paper display uh, after you power it up. That allows you to then configure the Wi-Fi on the hardware. And the way it does it is very similar to how you configure the Wi-Fi on your Chromecast or similar devices. You know, Essentially, you connect to the hardware, hotspot running on the hardware, you set up the credentials, and then you exit, right? So that's one uh, typical use case for the PWS. The other thing is for different kinds of RFID readers uh, and you know, different kinds of hardware, there are different configuration parameters that we also need to provide. So for instance, a particular RFID reader might be uh, located in uh, your bedroom, right? A different RFID reader is located in your kitchen. So you then need to specify and program it and say that, okay, well, hey, you know, this RFID reader is here, this RFID reader is in this location, et cetera. So these sort of configuration parameters, other things like OTAs, OZR updates, firmware versions, et cetera, et cetera, are all set through the same PWA layer. Uh, why a PWA layer? Uh, well, PWAs are way faster to develop and way simpler to debug than, and obviously easier to update than native applications. So we started off with native applications running Bluetooth and all of our hardware would provide a Bluetooth interface and you would configure over Bluetooth. We just found the PWA way of doing it way simpler and easy to maintain for us. I mean, the added advantage is also that you don't need to push like an update to like an App Store app, which like in Apple's case could even take up to a week of review time, right? Like updating exactly. the PWA is probably is just updating the files on your server as, as the same as you do when you update a backend software. So I can certainly see yeah. why, why that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That does answer a few questions. I'm curious, like maybe... IoT hardware you're writing, is that built also with Nerve, something like that? Or are you using Elixir there too? Or is it C? Um, like the no. classic? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a little bit more classic. Okay, so we don't use Nerve yet, although we've done a few trials, etc. All of our hardware is microcontroller-based. So that's one reason we don't use Nerve yet, except for the camera that we're working on right now, which is a microprocessor-based system. Uh, we'll see if we move to Nerve over there, but that's still early R&D. The hardware that we build, typically, uh, you know, the sensor or the core functionality part of it comes off the shelf. So we don't build the RFID module for it. So we don't build the barcode scanner. And we buy this from uh, typical well-established vendors like Zebra or whoever, right? And then we add a microcontroller layer on top of it, which allows us to be able to interface with the hardware and then convert this into the API, right? So pretty standard stuff. Uh, uh, except now at the microcontroller level, the things that we do is basically we select our hardware in a way that we can support Wi-Fi, we can support WebSockets, we can support uh, HTTP APIs, and a couple of other use cases uh, you know, that are specific to, our, specific to us. So for instance, e-paper displays. 
And then the reason we go with microcontrollers is because almost all of our hardware, and not all of it, is battery powered. Right, so it's very important that uh, the power consumption of these devices is as low as possible. And this last aspect of it is what rules out processor-based or Linux-based systems. And as a result, we don't use NERVs. There may be use cases in the future. We're starting to look at uh, edge devices a little bit more, etc., uh, where NERVs might play a role. But at this point, we don't have enough use cases to justify NERVs. There's just a complexity layer that we don't need. Yeah, okay, fair enough. It was just, I mean. I think a lot of listeners immediately went there. Like you, you hear IoT and you think nerves. It, it, it makes sense. It's like this, yeah, you this think combination. Yeah, you hear and you hear IoT. It's nerves. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. But that's uh, just to add to that, right? So Alexer is actually great for another layer of IoT devices, which is uh, the cloud layer. Right? And I mean, this is not going to come as a, uh, as news to anyone, but. Uh, before we used Alexa, this was our typical stack, okay? And this is uh, going to be slightly shocking because uh, the number of different technologies is crazy. So you start with electronics design. So you need to know electronics design, schematics, et cetera, and so on, uh, supply chain, all of that, layouts, fabrication. Then you need different protocols. What are you, uh, of course, you have to write your firmware. Most of the time we write our firmware in C. I know teams which write it in C++ for Arduino type hardware. Some even write it in MicroPython, you know, et cetera. And then you have your protocol layers, you know, MQTT, whatever, right? So, uh, and so on. HTTP WebSockets, obviously, as well. Then the connectivity. So you need to know Wi-Fi, 4G, et cetera. And each of these has idiosyncrasies when it comes to reconnect, right? So, for instance, we have field devices which run 2G. And the total G modems that we use disconnect every 24 hours. And we haven't been able to really diagnose why they disconnect, but we just have to implement in firmware ways to reconnect. You know, and those sort of things you need to understand and you need to know. And you won't really learn it until you face the failure, right? In field, typically. Then all this has done so far has gotten the data out of the device and into the cloud, you know, into air. Now you have the cloud layer infrastructure. So we used to use AWS, or we still use AWS IoT. AWS IoT back when we started using it was a very simple system service. It's very complex now, as is all of AWS. AWS IoT only gives you a broker, right? So it just basically says, hey, here's an MQTT endpoint that can take data. And then by the way, you have to write your own rules or add your own rules to do something with the data. So now then you need to understand how rules engine work, uh, rules engines work and send the data somewhere, persist the data, and then you come around to visualizing or analyzing, et cetera, et cetera. So where Alexa Phoenix actually comes in is that it says, that, okay, well, you know, let's lay, take that AWS IoT to persistence or perhaps even the visualization, and then just take away all these multiple layers and just replace it with a single one. So today we use a, uh, Alexa Phoenix with SQLite, or with Postgres, depending on the use case. Uh, and that's it. And that gives us our entire ingress, rules engine, and persistence, right? And especially in the case of SQLite, we actually get backups very easily as well. So it's just so much simpler to manage as a stack. And we can we save a lot on cloud costs, et cetera. That's a different thing altogether. But it's just that because the complexity is lower, it just means for a, sm a small startup like ours, it just means less effort and uh, less things for someone to know to be able to get productive, right? So to be able to deliver. So that's quite important to us. So that's essentially where we feel like Alexir Phoenix is actually a great choice because unlike, uh, you could of course build the same backend, the backend and other software systems as well. But unlike all of the other choices that we did look at, uh, you get a lot out of the box with 
Phoenix, uh, you know, compared to let's say fast API or some Java-based system or a Go-based system. So yeah, Alexa has a huge role to play in IoT well beyond. Sorry, I need to ask a question. I think I yeah. heard you say PWA on a e-ink display. Isn't that the one like the Kindle has? Where it's like no color or anything. That's what I think I heard. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, yeah. So we use the PW, uh, the e-ink display, the e-paper display, essentially as local display slash diagnostic tool. So you know when the device powers up, uh, it will show a different QR code based on different states. If it's never been configured, it will show a certain QR code. If it's been configured, but then there's some errors that need to be diagnosed, it will show a different QR code, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So we use it essentially as a um, as an aid to diagnostics, and of course also okay. to show uptime and battery life, etc., and so on. But uh, yeah, okay, okay, okay. I I thought you were saying like the PWA was accessible from the e-ink, but it sounds like you're saying that you show a QR code along with some simple data. That's why I was like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right because yeah, e-ink displays I don't think can handle this kind of high interactivity, right? Yeah, and yeah, you know, we don't use it. So it's not it's not touch enabled. It's not uh, anything of the sort. It's just uh, you could do what we do with an LCD display as well. But uh, we choose the ink because you get a much higher resolution, much much better battery life. Because e-ink displays uh, do not consume any power unless you're switching the display. So unless you're changing contents of the display. So um, as long as nothing is changing dynamically on the e-paper display, no power is consumed by the display at all. So which is great. So for those reasons, we use e-paper displays uh, or e-ink displays, whichever way you want to prefer, uh, whatever, whichever way you prefer. The PWA itself runs on the user's devices, so typically a phone. I'm actually kind of curious, like, have you guys ever looked at Flutter? Because I know Flutter can output a PWA and also other kinds of stuff. Uh, just some background, yeah. of course, I have, my own, I have my own Flutter podcast, so and I actually use Flutter basically every day. So I'm just curious uh, if you ever looked at something like that, because you can get some pretty interesting uh, UIs. Sounds like you have. Yes, yeah, so and we have. So well before uh, AWS AWS started supporting Flutter, so one of the first, well, probably the only AWS IoT plugin for Flutter is still developed by us. We had 14 different plugins in the Flutter ecosystem. Flutter is great, right? So nothing against Flutter. It's uh, it's absolutely awesome. Two reasons we stopped using Flutter. One was uh, we used to have a very large, uh, well, largish web and mobile uh, app development team as well. And we sold that part of the business. So um, that's one reason we don't have a, Flutter team anymore. Second is, even though Flutter is great for developing apps, you still have that friction of, uh, you know, you have a native app now, and you still have the friction of submitting it to the Play Stores and uh, getting up- updates out there, right? Which is what Sasha, you know, uh, Sasha referred to earlier. So PWAs can be updated, you know, very easily. I know Flutter Web is now out of beta, I guess, but we haven't tried it. And uh, it, it just... There are so many easier ways to develop PWAs that uh, I'm not entirely sure Flutter is the best choice just for PWAs. But Flutter is great for native apps. And we used to develop a lot of them. And uh, uh, they're great for Bluetooth-based apps or you know, those kind of things as well. It's just uh, we decided that we were a lot more proficient and uh, also comfortable with the PWA approach uh, just because of the updates as well as the uh, velocity of development. Okay, it's good to hear. Yeah, I was just curious because I know that the the web stuff is basically a PWA, and yeah, I mean you get the you get basically everything else as a bonus, right? The different other platforms. So it's it's, yeah, it's think, interesting to hear. Mm-hmm. And I know yeah, Nerves already has supports. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go on. No, no, go on. No, I was just saying like 
Nerves is actually looking at trying to support uh, Flutter to their current, you know, system, which which I think is would be great, right? If you can, you know, have your Elixir backend with a nice UI, because yeah, I mean, you can do some really interesting stuff very easily with Flutter, right? If, if you've written Flutter before, I think if you want to make some nice animations, all this kind of stuff is pretty straightforward for the most part. So yeah, I, anyways, I'm, I'm just curious on my own part if you ever take a look at that for your own apps for PWA or even other things it sounds like you have so okay it's interesting to hear so actually there's one other thing that we've done with flutter and there's actually an app out there which uses which is built by us and then uh, you know it was part of the field that we did but uh, there's one really nice pattern that you can use with flutter as well uh, where you can actually wrap the entire pwa inside flutter and what this gives you is obviously an installable app for, even for iOS, because PWAs can't be installed on iOS without you know opening that can of worms. So, and beautiful thing about that is the PWA once it's opened in the Flutter app is cached locally and it com- com- works completely offline as well. So you can still use uh, PWAs to develop most of your app and just have the Flutter wrapper for launching the app. And we actually use it at IoT Ready as well. So we have a Flutter wrapper for a couple of APIs. So one, uh, well, three APIs. One is for Bluetooth, another is for Wi-Fi, and the third is for Bonjour services. So essentially for discovering our hardware, et cetera, we have a Flutter wrapper. And the Flutter wrapper, is all it's doing is actually launching our PWA and in the background, launching essentially servers, HTTP servers, which are wrappers around these uh, native APIs. So the PWA makes a call to local host asking, okay, show me a list of all the Wi-Fi uh, endpoints, show me a list of all IoT-ready devices, or uh, you know, show me a list of all Bluetooth devices. And you can actually work with it as if they were just HTTP APIs. It works beautifully. So we're planning to open source that soon. So we'll probably write another blog post about that. Maybe you can invite him on your Flutter podcast then, Alan. Yeah, they already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying, you guys are already stripping out most of your Flutter stuff, but yeah, it, it could be interesting. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So, if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software, so it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation how do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. 
but then you're also like losing, you know, the flutter is all about the UI. You're saying you wrap this, you wrap that. It's so much wrapping. I just you're kind of losing some of the, the, the niceness here and there, right? But I, I can understand that sometimes that is a better solution. So think as, as an, okay, let's take that use case. Okay, so let's, and then I'll, I'll take an example of uh, one of our customers. I won't name them because there's a little bit of shaming involved, uh, both on our part and theirs. So one of our customers has 50,000 odd devices, consumer devices built around our hardware, our firmware, our cloud infrastructure, et cetera, right? And these have a cumulative value, you know, well into the tens of millions of dollars. So these are high value products. Their first version of the app was built by us, you know, back when our dev, dev team was very young and we just started off and it was pretty crap, you know, if I might say so myself. And then we rebuilt it using Flutter. And uh, the entire dev cycle was so long, changing over from our previous stack to Flutter, et cetera. Flutter was pretty new at that time. Didn't have any plugins for Cognito, AWS Cognito, any of those sort of things. And we wrote, so the reason we wrote all those plugins was because there was nothing else out there. But then if you think of the same dev cycle and think, okay, well, what are the parts of the dev uh, development which took the most effort? Uh, there were two pieces. One was the Bluetooth stack. The Bluetooth stack for Flutter back in 2018 was pretty poor. It's now significantly better. And the second was the UI, right? And unless you're doing animations, which you referred to, if you're doing relatively static views, then you can actually get a similar look and feel and a similar performance from web uh, or PWAs compared to Flutter. So what this new, you know, not new, but what the approach that we've sort of selected uh, gives us is that we write up plugins in Flutter and, uh, you know, let's say the Bluetooth plugin. And we have the Flutter wrapper app, right? Now, this remains pretty static because uh, what we've done is essentially wrap generic Bluetooth commands. And there are only six or seven of them. So there's a scan, which is lists the Bluetooth devices, there's connect, there's disconnect, there's read something, there's write something, right? That's pretty much it. And then this wrapper doesn't change, right? So this plugin doesn't change, this wrapper doesn't change. There may be bug fixes here and there, but that's, that's pretty much it. Then for every new customer, all we have to do is change the UI of the PWA. And the PWA, the core functionality, again, doesn't really change because all it is doing is making HTTP API calls saying, okay, hey, show me a list of uh, Bluetooth devices, you know, connect to this particular one, read this thing, write that thing. That's it, right? So then the advantage is that now because everything is an HTTP API call, typical web developers find it a lot easier, right? Uh, because not everyone knows how to write native Bluetooth code. Right, uh, because again, you run into the same challenges that okay, even Bluetooth devices disconnect. So handling disconnects is something that you don't really want your native UI developer to do. So what we've done is written a plugin which handles all of that for you, and then the UI guy just needs to figure out how to do the customization specific specific to a given hardware or a given customer, if that makes sense. And then most of your core code remains pretty standard, pretty consistent, and doesn't change across customers. And the only thing that changes is this web layer or the UI layer. And the advantage there is that, uh, you know, every time the Flutter app is launched, you could potentially uh, change the UI because, uh, you know, you can apply tweaks to the UI as you go along. And you don't have to wait for a complete approval cycle through the Play Store, et cetera, or the App Store and wait a couple of months to get that out there. So this balance of, you know, this balanced approach actually, or divided approach actually gives you a lot of advantages from velocity perspective, if that makes sense. So just to make sure I understand correctly, like the, the mm -hmm. Flutter wrapper you, you mentioned basically runs the PWA, like in what, a web view? Or how does that work? Or did I misunderstand that? It launches the PWA as a web view. 
So okay. as soon as the Flutter app launches, it does two things. It launches a HTTP server, which is essentially just wrapping the Bluetooth API. And it launches the web view, which is the PW. And uh, as one use case, right? So in our case, there are the kinds of uh, APIs as well that we wrap, but this is one use case. And the advantage, obviously, is that the UI can be updated you know, on the go. Right. Um, I would actually like to get back to, to PWAs because like, I had this thought. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just the web page, basically, right? Like a bit of, a bit mm-hmm. of local caching happening. But have you like looked into combining a PWA with like Phoenix Live View? Because at the end of the day, like Phoenix Live View, what is it? It's some JavaScript running on the client side, connecting to WebSocket and then doing some some magic. So so <laughs> I feel like you could basically like have this weird combination of like something which is like installed on the user's device, but then gets the automatic updating of Phoenix Live Views built in. Um, so as in, I feel like they're solving slightly different problems, right? So as an uh I think if if you really wanted to, you could probably force fit them together. But so Phoenix Live View depends on state being managed uh, almost entirely on the server side, right? So then the Live View is essentially a state machine, right? So then it, each client that's connected, you know, uh, gets its own state. That state is managed in the uh, you know in the socket, and as the user progresses through different views, the state keeps getting updated and the UI gets updated automatically or automatically for the user. Uh, with a PWA, because you need to provide a guarantee of that thing working offline, almost by necessity, a lot of the state has to be managed client-side, right? That makes sense. So, you know, you sort of have to move the whole thing over. So you could potentially make them work together by replicating state on both sides, etc. I'm not entirely sure what it would give you. It might give you faster loading of the first view, right? But then live view, you know, relies on server-side uh, routing, right? And then it figures out, okay, hey, you know, these are the deltas of in the HTML view, so just this needs to be pushed down the wire, etc. Whereas PWAs work quite differently. So if you look at most single-page applications, uh, the entire web app is loaded and uh, stored locally. The example blog post uh, that the example we built in the blog post that we put out was about okay, well, not about loading the entire web app, but just loading this particular route as a PWA, right? And it, that's easily doable with uh, Phoenix. And you, I'm not entirely sure like what benefits you would really get if you were to combine the two together. It might be a good thought exercise, and it's just not something that we've explored. But yeah, yeah, I was just curious. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, Phoenix Live View is some JavaScript running on the client side, and if you then have a cache, it could potentially work. My, my train of thought was being like, it could, for example, be used to have like to use it for like live uh, metrics, which maybe, for example, see a graph of like something which has happened in the past 10, 30 seconds, because that by definition is something which, if you're offline, is not that helpful because you might want to see live versions of that and then you could uh, potentially make use of like having everything server side and then reuse it also in other places that was my thinking but um <laughs> i was just curious if, if you dare to rather with that because it's an interesting combination of paradigms which i think a lot of people would th- would look like a net like wait what we have this local offline thing and then we have this only online thing how does it work together but yeah yeah so as in, i don't I, would you know how the live dashboard works as in uh, i haven't seen the deltas on the dashboard but uh does it send, uh, what does it send down the wire? Does it send pieces of HTML or does it send pieces of JSON? As far as I know, it sends HTML, but to be honest, I don't know for certain. Okay, right. so I can yeah. give you some information about how the live view stuff works. The initial page 
load, right? So you have a static render, and then the, the next part is that the data is actually divided up. So this may have changed, but I, I don't think so. But basically, the data is divided up into two sections. One is static, and the other one is dynamic. And so there's some stitching that happens between the two pieces of data. And then, yeah, and then from then on, uh, the diff will just get sent over. So all those dynamic pieces that were sent separately, I can't remember exactly what the format is, but something like the index of what that one was, along with all the data that's changed. Yeah. So I, I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. So yeah, it's going to be diffs. Yeah, so it's, of course, encoded in JSON, but yeah, still HTML kind of hard hard, hard uh, data being sent over the wire. Yeah. So that's basically uh, yeah. how it all works. I'm actually aware that this is like how live view works. It's just, I mean, you... Terrible wondering of the flats, but the sameness like live dashboard does because I mean it's rendering some graphs. Maybe they're doing something yeah. different there. Should be the same SVG just coming in over the wire. So there's also context, which I'm guessing what they probably use, which is just drawing SVG on the server side. And so all you do is you just draw the SVG and then just send the whole thing over the wire. I mean, there's yeah, not so really, it's not static, right? So sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, I've used context, and uh, the the thing about context is that you actually send the entire SVG back down, right? So because of the way uh, Phoenix uh, Live View, you know, divides up the DOM in a way, right? So it divides up the HTML, uh, the SVG. Uh, if I recall correctly, uh, every time you update the chart, the entire SVG is re-rendered and sent back down, and uh, you know that's that's sort of where uh, the Live View paradigm is not super efficient because, uh, well, if I'm updating one point on the chart, why do I need to send the, send the entire SVG down, right? But uh, Phoenix Live View doesn't understand SVG. It understands HTML, right? So, and SVG is just one DOM element. Sorry to stop you, but like what, what Live View does is pretty interesting. Like it doesn't even understand HTML. Like it understands text and it understands, okay, where in the text do you do dynamic rendering and where is it all static? And then it just sends like these patches of like text, which get then stitched together back to the whole DOM. So in theory, like you could even probably write some JavaScript in Live View, and then you get like like stitches of this JavaScript being being, being stitched back into your like original thing. So that I'm, I'm not sure like why you would do that. It's, it sounds horrible, but <laughs> you could do no, but it. I, no, that makes but a lot I of sense. that actually SVG stitching should work, but I mean they, they they have been working on like this new format, especially around Surface, because Surface is like this web component thing mm -hmm. in Live View, and that like that format that I, I forgot like how how it's called. Like it's not EEX, but it's like something new. Basically, that is HTML aware, uh, and they can then then do some optimizations around that, but. I'm not 100% certain how that then plays in with SVG. If it's um, if they plan on doing that as like the basis for Live View everywhere, uh, that's something I, I would have to look up. Maybe some business know and like they can shoot us a message on Twitter or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So if Context started using Eek template, Eek templates or Eek tags, then I guess then Phoenix would break it up and potentially serve it, right? But then yeah, with the way you would do it for the PWA is that you know you have the graphing library on the clients that are already cached. And then you would just send the data back down through JSON, right? So that's the classic way of doing it with PWA. And then, you know, you would use Plotly or something like Chart.js, et cetera, and then just patch the graph as you get new data. But yeah, so anyway, I don't know where we started and where we ended up, but yeah, here, here we are. <laughs> we were just considering if it makes sense to, con to combine PWAs with LIFU. 
but yeah okay um any more questions from you ellen i mean uh, i have a few more but maybe you have something no actually no I, i think it's also good to know like what is the current status with ios and and pwas because i know google made a big push and i think you already mentioned some like i believe with android you can definitely do push notifications and ios you cannot if i remember correctly So I like you can't even install this, the Yeah, yeah, that's also what you said too. Actually, yeah, but you can put like a shortcut on your device though. That's like the yeah. closest you can do, right? Yeah, but you can do that for any web app, any web page, right? So then that's that's different because you don't get the offline caching. Uh, you don't obviously get uh, notification support, etc. So I don't know. I don't know if you uh, if you use the Alexa forum on your phone, but the Alexa forum is a PWA, right? Uh, I think every disc, uh, every discourse uh, forum is a PWA, but uh, you could just install it, and that's how I use it. And it's fairly indistinguishable from a native app. It actually works really well. I get notifications, you know, all of that. It's great. Actually, so then this is a another question I have is knowing all the limitations on iOS at least. And iOS is a huge base. I don't know about for your customers, but I think at least in US, I could definitely say Hong Kong, but. Maybe not India. Like so many people using using iOS, is is PWA still going to be the way for you guys to go? Considering like how limited it is, and and just half of your at least half of your potential customers. That's a great question, and uh, this is certainly the reason that a lot of our okay. So we have two kinds of customers. We have industrial customers, and we have uh, consumer product customers, right? For the industrial customers, where we are selling our own hardware, iOS is a essentially a non-entity. It doesn't matter, right? So. Uh, Because if you say that, hey, you're going to use this particular Samsung phone from 2015, they're going to use that particular <laughs> Samsung phone. You can be pretty uh, pretty brazen about what you ask them to use, right? Which is okay. Of course, most of the industrial use cases, uh, you know, uh, for us at least, are Android-centric, so it doesn't matter as much anyway. Uh, for the consumer-centric case, I, you know, I apologize for coming back to the same point again and again. I, I still feel like there's this uh, sweet spot Between using a native wrapper and PWAs, because it, it really has to be seen to be believed. Uh, you know, uh, you have to actually try an app which wraps a PWA, and quite honestly, half the time you won't even be able to tell that this is actually a wrapper for a web view. It's impossible to tell uh, because the performance is at par with native, and you don't have any you know additional Chrome. You can't really you don't see any jankiness which says that okay, hey, this is a PWA. It's not a native view. Uh, we have an entire, you know, the the company that I sold, uh, Content Ready, was an education app, right? So then it's an edtech app, and uh, there's rendering of videos, rendering of PDFs, and all of that sort of stuff, and you really can't tell uh, whether it's a native or uh, a web view. And uh, that's just a there's a PWA, and then there's the Flutter wrapper for the PWA, just so that you can distribute it on the App Store. I'm not entirely sure uh, if they have actually distributed on the App Store yet, but uh, The PWA is available online, so you can just go and check it out as well. If, uh, I'm happy to share a link. So it's just uh, there is very little difference uh, for certain use cases, of course. And when you come to certain other use cases, like uh, you know animation, and, and Flutter makes a huge deal about animations, and they, they're great. And sure, uh, at that point, you know you're talking about, or you know if you're talking about 60 FPS video, right, uh, or in uh, 60 FPS interactive games, etc. Then yeah, web can't hold a candle to it. But for all of the kind of use cases that I'm talking about, where you know you're interacting with IoT devices, etc., you want nice UI, but not necessarily that you know you're not necessarily looking for fancy animations. Uh, PWAs or web views actually make uh, you know make a great 
are a great fit because again, you know, I think it depends on the kind of company that you are as well. So, you know, if you're talking about a small company with maybe a couple of developers, three developers, et cetera, in the app team, web just gives you so much more uh, to work with. And you can, you can get the first version out much faster than you would be able to, even with Flutter for both Android and iOS. And you can just focus on iteration. Well, at least that's my experience with it. Right? So, and we were a, close to a 30-person web team, uh, web and mobile team at some point. Not, not even about Flutter, though. I'm just thinking in my head, if I remember correctly, like LinkedIn used to be like a wrapper with a web UI in the back end, and then they just totally dropped that for native experience. So I was kind of curious if you guys... I mean, you're laughing right now on video. I could see you, but I was just curious if if, if you yeah, knew the LinkedIn is not really the standard you use for UI, right? So then, uh, no, uh, if LinkedIn has uh, okay, today I know it's a lot better, but LinkedIn had for the longest time the worst possible web experience that you could get, right? So then it's just I don't think I have I have friends who work at LinkedIn, but you know it's just it's just bad. <laughs> it used to be really bad. I don't know. I think okay, more seriously though, then if you look at uh, kind of PWS that you can put out with React or Vue, Elm, uh, whatever, right? So, and we've used all three. They can be actually pretty lean, really good performance, great uh, navigation experience. And uh, again, it depends, I think, on the kind of... LinkedIn can actually be built using web very easily. And I think actually can give you a lot of, uh, you know, you can get a great experience as well. Why did they not? As in, LinkedIn has a lot of different products. And if you want to get all of those products loaded at launch time, jobs and messages and feed, et cetera, and all of that, then maybe it gets a bit heavier, but I'm sure there's a way to handle that. Uh, I, at least I'm biased on that front. But yeah. Anyway, yeah. but I think Flutter is great, by the way. And then I've, you know, as I said, we were all in on the Flutter ecosystem and I still believe Flutter is a great choice. It's just, I do feel like that cost of development of this Flutter and the time to development, time to market with Flutter is a bit higher than it is with Web. Maybe not a bit, a lot higher than with Web. And the bigger pain point is actually the uh, cost of update because the you know the amount of friction that you get with the Play Stores is quite a lot, right? So you know, if you want to make a minor UI change, uh, you don't want to have to go through another app submission. So what you tend to do is then you know you bucket them up and you say that okay, hey, these are in the backlog for the next release. And it, I just feel like that's a bad just a, just this bad product management practice. Because if you if you have a minor fix to do, you should be able to fix it and release it immediately, right? Without having to worry about okay, do I really want to go through another submission right now? You know, so I feel like web just sort of liberates you from that level, that type of thinking, and you just release things to production a lot faster. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe like I'm gonna stop you both you because we got a bit derailed. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if you if 80% is enough or even 90% is enough and a PWA probably can get you there a lot quicker as compared to like a native experience where maybe you want to go there if you really want this super polished experience. I, I, I can see why, where certain scenarios would rather be, like a native would be preferable. But then again, you could make the same argument about Flutter and versus uh, native like Swift slash Kotlin for Android, right? If you like really want the super native experience, maybe you rather want to use Swift or Kotlin. But yeah, I'd like to, to ask you, like, is there anything you learned like while, while building this, which is like not on the blog post? I mean, the blog post is pretty basic in terms of like how, how this can you set up this, this minimum viable 
PBWA? Is there like anything, especially in the context of like Phoenix and Elixir, you say, okay, this was like something I've learned, or this is like a tip I can give, or which is like a pitfall, anything? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things that come to mind immediately, right? And there's another blog post that's been sitting in my drafts for a long time that I need to push out. But so first thing, right? So, uh, well, one of the one of the important things. So if you have if you have a HTTP HTTPS based web app, right? It turns out you can't actually make HTTP-based WebSocket connections from that. Okay, so if we, the original web app is, or the original PWA is hosted on an HTTPS endpoint, an SSL-protected endpoint, from that app, you can't actually make HTTP or insecure WebSocket connections, okay? This was uh, a bit of a surprise for me. Apparently, it's well-known and well-understood, but I didn't know this. Um, so we realized it after we built uh, our PWA and launched it and everything. Oh, okay. Not, it's not connecting to our hardware. And the reason it wasn't connecting to our hardware is because our hardware only exposes an HTTP or a WS, not a WSS, uh, because it's all local. So nothing's on the internet. Our hardware is not on the internet. It's on the local network. So that was one. So we basically have to serve the PWA on an HTTP uh, as well. So, you know, you have to basically disable in your reverse proxy, you have to disable the automatic redirect. You know, in your typically your Nginx or your traffic or whatever you're using, you would set it up so that HTTP connections are automatically secured by redirecting them to the HTTPS. You just have to disable that. So that's one. And that's something that we had to do in our in our case. The second is actually a huge performance benefit. So our when we do writes from our hardware, a typical packet is you know a few hundred bytes. That's it, right? Maybe a kilobyte. It's not much more than that. And we may write a packet uh, every five seconds or 10 seconds or so, right? When you compare the uh, latency of writing it to AWS IoT or an HTTPS uh, endpoint, uh, Phoenix uh, API, or, or the Phoenix channels, Phoenix channels are typically better by an order of 10 to 100. So you can you get a latency down to single-digit milliseconds, like three, four milliseconds, and in some cases, one millisecond or, or lesser, right? Is HTTPS, that also true for the, for the initial connection attempt, or is that only after you basically already established connection? After the, after the first connection. Yeah, right? okay. The initial makes connection, sense so the thing is, the initial connection doesn't really matter. You don't even notice it because that's happening when the device is powered on. Yeah, yeah, right? sure. So uh, you power on the device, we basically delay showing anything on the display until everything else is ready in the back end, uh, in the background, right? That takes about three or four seconds. And only when the display is ready is when the user starts using it. And this all, this whole thing only takes five seconds in even. Uh, but this is enough. More, uh, Phoenix connection probably takes half a second, right? I don't think it takes longer than that. But we've never benchmarked it. But we have benchmarked the data uh, ingress, right? And it's crazy. It's so much better than a Phoenix API and way better than the AWS IoT endpoint. It's just not even comparable in terms of the latencies. It's great. It, it makes sense to me. I mean, at the end of the day, what is a WebSocket? The WebSocket is like this, this initial HTTP connection, then it keeps your TCP connection open. And after that, you don't have yeah. to handle, uh, you don't have to send HTTP headers and stuff. I actually yeah. wrote my bachelor thesis on WebSockets. So. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Back right. then, like eight years ago, <laughs> when WebSockets were new <laughs> and fancy. So yeah, that make, makes total sense to me. You just have to send a lot less data over the wire. You really only send the data well, you're interested in, like in your case, these, these few hundred bytes, and you don't have to send the whole shebang of like headers and stuff. You don't have to establish a TCP connection. It's already there. So I can see yeah. why, why, why that would be helpful, yeah. 
But then the moment this happens, right? So what we started doing is we actually started sending live metrics from our devices. Uh, so these are things, I don't know if you've heard of eBPF for Linux, sent all kinds of system metrics, CPU, uh, memory, et cetera, but also a bunch of other stuff like how many registers I use, et cetera, and so on. Uh, there was a new EP, eBPF foundation announced a couple of days ago as well. We use uh, FreeRTOS, which is a real-time operating system for microcontrollers, and it offers its own, not that depth, but a similar stack of data. What tasks are running, how much heap memory is being used by different uh, tasks, et cetera. We now just transmit all of this, or not all of it, but a lot of this over the wire as well, because the cost of doing it is so low that you might as well gather this information because this helps in diagnostics. So, you know, it's those kind of technical choices which suddenly, you know, again, it's one of those liberation things, right? You don't have to think about, oh God, okay, you know, if I send it, how much data am I using? How much latency am I, you know, going to uh, face? Because in our case, every connection that takes a long time delays the next thing, right? Because we're talking about single-threaded microcontrollers here. Everything's just faster, so we don't have to think too much about it. So that's you know that's another thing that you get out of the box. I'm not saying that you wouldn't get that kind of performance with other WebSocket implementations in Java or GoLang or whatever, but uh, here with Phoenix, you get it out of the box. We didn't implement anything, right? The only thing we added to the base Phoenix channel was X509 authentication, and that was pretty much stolen as is from the Nerves Hub uh, code base. <laughs> so, uh, uh, anyway, I then like do full attribution to them and they, you know, they've done a great job there. But the point is that out of the box, you can have a really secure, really scalable cloud infrastructure for IoT devices, which is great. And that's why, you know, we love Alexa. Yeah. All right. That was a lot of information today. Uh, what move us over to picks unless you have something which is like burning through your back pocket, Adam? Just my money. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. For, for you there. Like picks, I'm not sure if you've listened to to Ximix before, but basically at the end of the show, like everybody of us yeah. picks a few things they want to promote. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So I'm just uh, yeah, going to so, start here off. Um, yeah. So this week I'm going to want to pick uh, You Got This events, like their conference slash event slash community event thing, um, which is discussing core skills. Some people call them soft skills. I think core skills is actually more applicable because you need them pretty much everywhere, regardless of your chosen profession. And they focus on like teaching these these, these core skills um, stories and teaching these, these core skills which is something which isn't that much represented in our industry. Um, Yugatvis tends to focus on more of a technical side of things in terms of like it's a, it's a thing for developers and, and, and for so on. But it really focuses on like giving you like some, some teachings and some learnings on uh, how you can lead a happy and healthy work life. So if you're, if you're interested, a lot of their events are also free. So really check them out. I think they're doing really great work. Alan, what are your picks? So I just have one pick. And it's a fantastic pick at that. So I just finished up a project for a rather big company. And they gave me an HTML email. And I don't know how much you guys know about creating HTML emails, but they are just not fun at all. Lots of doing tables and everything else to kind of make them work. And I used to use Foundation for creating emails. I think it's Inky Template, something like that. 
this time around, I decided to try something a little bit different. So it's something called MJML. I don't know if you guys ever tried that before, but since this is an Elixir project, I had to send out an email. Uh, so they gave me this EML file, which is basically you know like an email, and I had to extract the uh, HTML from it to make it work, and it didn't really render properly. So I basically had to rebuild the entire email, <laughs> and so uh, I gave it to one of my one of my uh, my employees to do. So he used this MJML to create the email, and what's nice is it's nice and like uh, responsive for whatever screen size you want, and looks it works great. And so we did it in about an hour just to recreate everything, like picking up the, the language, implementing it uh, into Phoenix. And uh, yeah, and that was that was good. The only bad part is that, well, you know, you know me, I'm a fanboy of Rust, right? So we found a, uh, <laughs> there is on Hex, there's uh, something called MJML, which is just a Rust NIF. Works great. Otherwise, the other one I know of is you have to use Node. So I just said, yeah, either Node or Rust. Hmm, pretty easy choice. So. Yeah, we use the NIF and it works great. It's really, really fast. And uh, the email got done and the client's happy and hopefully I get paid soon. So anyways, MJML, give it a shot if you need to make HTML emails. I think it's really, really great. Uh, if you Otherwise, check out uh, Foundation. It's also pretty good too. So that's kind of my my picks, my two picks, I guess now. I love the tagline on the website. It's like MJML is responsive by design on most popular email clients, even Outlook. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's actually what was happening is that the, the emails weren't rendering properly on on Outlook for some reason, and then this solved the issue. So uh, yeah, it's definitely a lifesaver. Yeah, I've, I've not yet done email templates, but I've like worked with people who had to do them and like the cursing they they were doing. So yeah, I, I can see why this is useful. <laughs> okay, um, Jeff, what are your picks? So one that I've been working a little bit with recently is called Dataset. I don't know if you guys have heard of it or come across it already. Dataset is spelled D-A-T-A-S-E-T-T-E. It's by uh, this guy called Simon Willison. And it's just a very simple Python-based tool, which allows you to create web UIs around static data sets. So, you know, you can create uh, charts and exploratory data sets around uh, any data that can be important to SQLite. It's really, really nice, actually. And I used it over the weekend uh, for some experiments I was doing. And super easy to get started with and uh, saves you a ton of time. So that's one. The other one that I'm trying to wrap my head around uh, right now is something called Braid, B-R-A-I-D. It seems it, it, the tagline is synchronization for HTTP, right? So, it, uh, you know, it does some of things that Phoenix actually does for us already. But this is, a, this is meant to be IETF standard, which brings uh, peer-to-peer synchronization to HTTP. And these sort of things always catch my eye a little bit because, I, you know, that's a topic that I'm deeply interested in and I want to see how we can use them to make our lives a little bit simpler. It's still very early. I think they started working on it a few months ago. So I'm curious to see where it goes. So that's braid.org. Nice. All right, folks. Then I think we are done here. So I hope you all have a great day and tune in next time when we have an episode of Elixir happening. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.